Welcome back to another episode, you beautiful animals. We're here today talking to the amazing Alice Child, who's a somatic sexologist, sex counsellor and sex coach who believes everyone deserves a happy, healthy, safe and fulfilled sex life. Alice has a passion for opening tough conversations, confronting taboos and creating inclusive spaces free of judgment. She works with couples, individuals and groups, exploring diverse topics of sexuality, intimacy and pleasure. In 2020, she founded Vulva Dialogues to normalize conversations about sex and empower individuals to learn more about their bodies and sexual health. Volva Dialogues has brought sex-positive workshops, talks, and events to thousands of people globally, and I'm excited for her to be here to share her expertise with you all. I really liked my chat with Alice because I was able to ask a lot of questions in a space that felt really receptive to true conscious answers. I think that mental health and sex are very, very intertwined and relationship romantic relationships often have a massive impact on the way that we feel and we interpret the world and uh, I think there's going to be some golden nuggets in this chat that you guys get because I certainly did just a reminder please uh, subscribe rate and review the show it goes a long way we're giving you tons of free value here so the one thing you can do to help us back if you feel so inclined is to get behind the show to help us spread the message. That would be awesome. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you, Alice. I am personally selfishly excited for this episode, <laughs> Alice, because it is a topic that I don't often get a chance to explore in a safe, conscientious way mm. with a lot of people who can, who want to go there, not only to educate, but allow people to lean into pleasure. Because I think that I, I used to have sexual OCD as a child, so mm. that topic for me was very, very taboo. In fact, to the point where I felt like I was possessed when I started having mm. sexual thoughts about women as a teenager. And I had to do a lot of therapy to mm. build comfort with having sexual thoughts and feelings and even comfortable that I had the power to produce life, you know. Uh, so... Why do you think as a society, to start with a, a fairly big question, why do you think as a society we shame, we have mm. shamed sex in the past? Yeah, it's a huge question, isn't it? There's so many reasons that we still live in a pretty sex negative and conservative society, you know, whether it's religion or just shame around upbringing around bodies. Um, and I think that sex negativity, that embarrassment or awkwardness or discomfort that so many are either explicitly or implicitly taught when it comes to sex mm. shows up in people in ways that maybe they don't even realize until they're adults or expressing them sexually for the themselves sexually for the first time and you know if you think about your first formative experiences when it comes to sex or learning about sex or learning about intimacy or your body you know your experience isn't you know, that uncommon most people's first experiences are loaded with I'm doing something wrong you know even if for example a parent walks in and even without meaning to cause harm often go no or stop that or you know mm. make it make it feel like they've just seen something awful and then because they have their own shame they don't bring it up themselves either you know I've right. talked with a lot of parents who are like oh my son or daughter walked in on us having sex and no one said anything and because it becomes a bit of a cycle, 
you know, if your parents can't talk about sex, the children can't, and it becomes a bit of a cycle of shame and silencing. And because we're taught that it's something we shouldn't talk about, then the shame, that's where shame breeds in the silence. Shame breeds in the silence. I love that expression. I think there's a very good parallel toward the sexual domain and the mental health domain with that exact same thing. Shame breeds silence and silence breeds shame. It's kind of Mm. like a circular loop. What prompted you to get into sex therapy? Mm, I've always been fascinated by human sexuality. Mm. And I've always found talking about sex easier than maybe my friends or people who I met. And but I chose a different career. I chose advertising when I was, you know, in my early twenties. And so I didn't really know how to jump into this completely different career. And so I started by slowly getting closer to the um, sexual health space by working for a healthcare company and then eventually a sex toy company and doing sort of different training and qualifications when it came to sex. And eventually what really made me go, no, I just need to jump ship completely and do this full time was in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I ran uh, sex workshops for women online and they were called Vulva Dialogues. And we did about an eight part series and I'd bring different psychologists and sex educators and you know, sex workers, you name it. It was a very diverse group of sex positive people. And it was the favorite, my favorite thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after that, I was like, I don't want to just host and organize these spaces. I want to be sitting where they are and have the answers to yeah. these questions. So that was the real final push to go and get certified and, and change, change career. Basically. Yeah. Massive congrats for making the leap. And I want to know, why do you think it is that you feel more comfortable talking about sex than most of your peers like growing up? Mm, that's a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I was very lucky. I, I was raised by some pretty cool people who were very open about you know bodies and sex and very much still in love couple Mm. my parents are awesome and always made nudity and you know weird conversations very normal in my house so i think they've had a lot to a lot to play and i guess i'm also just a very curious person when i started to discover my own sexuality it was with a lens of joy and enthusiasm and excitement and the more I learned and discovered the more pleasure and excitement and confidence it gave me as a person and I started to realize that this is such a huge part of what makes us who we are yeah and when I was able to explore it fully I was you know a better professional I was a better friend I was you know a better family member because I just had a bit more richness of who I was Mm. um so yeah yeah, good question. Many things, many influences, I think. Yeah, I, I'm, I think a lot of women especially probably struggle with having that level of enthusiasm around it, and men too, but unfortunately females from where I sit, there's, it's more loaded with shame than it necessarily should be by a long way. Mm. H- have you ever felt shame when talking about sex with other women? Um, I remember one formative experience when I was 16. We played Never Have I Ever. Mm. You know, it's a game that we play a lot in the UK and I think a lot in Australia as well. And someone said, Never Have I Ever Masturbated. Mm. And all the guys drank and none of the women did except for myself because I just hadn't ever had that conversation with any of my female friends and was pretty surprised that no one else drank and then pretty surprised when the backlash was 
you know, surprise. It wasn't mean, but it was definitely, I can't believe Alice masturbates, you know? Mm. And I was like, oh, no one else is drinking? Oh, okay. And that, you know, was brought up a lot for the years after that. So that was the one time where female pleasure and sexuality was definitely booted into a different category to my male friend's sexuality. So how did you not go down that path then of withdrawing from the subject and still bloom into it when most people would shrink as a result of that experience? I guess because it was so fun. Yeah. (laughs) Fucking sex is great. Fucking oh. You know, I had a great first partner. I lost my virginity at 18. He was awesome. We're very open with those sorts of conversations. The fr- as I said, all of my friends were yeah. you know, pretty cool people. I was lucky to have very sex positive parents. So it was never a shameful conversation. It was just a bit embarrassing. Sure. You know, rather than, oh, this is now something I can't talk about ever again. I think that's testament also not just to the way you managed the conversation about sex. It also speaks to your mental health, your attachment style, the parents that you had, Mm. because you had a choice in that moment and you chose the story to be, that was a little embarrassing. Oh, well, (laughs) Yeah. when a lot of people can let that story fester into part of their identity, a formative traumatic experience and recluse, what are some of the stories? Let's start with what is a story you tell yourself about sex, even now as an adult that helps you keep it in a positive domain Mm, that it's good for us you know it's not just good for our relationships a lot of people come to me because they want to learn how to you know reignite their sex drive or be better in bed for their partner you know they've lost their sex drive for one reason or another and they realize that it's important for their marriage and for their relationship and so want to reconnect and yet they're not often there to do it for themselves you know they're motivated by someone else But actually, sex is very good for the individual. You know, you shouldn't be doing these things out of pressure or obligation for someone else. It should really be about doing it because it's just another form of giving your body pleasure, like going for a massage. Mm. You know, great sex, it releases the same uh, chemicals and neurotransmitters and hormones in the body that help break up cortisol and stress hormones to just help regulate your mood, help you sleep, help you connect to other people and connect to your own body as well. You know, there's been studies into showing that sex is not only good for your mental health, but your physical health as well. And then of course, obviously your relationship. So it's a much bigger picture than just have sex to make your partner happy. It's so much more. There's so many threads there. I just want to pull it, like <laughs> explore all of them. Um, I, I'm frantically writing notes so that I don't miss any questions and later go, I wanted to ask Alice that. So let's go a few different directions here. I'm going to ask you two percentage questions. The first is what percentage of people roughly mm. at a gut feel come to you because they want to get their bad sex life to neutral versus the percentage of people that want to get their good sex life to amazing? I would say when I started, it was about 50-50. And for whatever reason at the moment, the majority of the people that I see are going from, I'm not happy with where it's currently at. How can it, how can it be good? Okay. Um, <clears throat> and I do love working with people who go, you know what, it's pretty good, but what more, you know, what don't I know? Sure. You know, help me explore even further and, you know, explore certain fantasies or certain areas that I know not, not enough about yet. But at the moment, maybe because of the cost of living crisis, 
most people who have the financial means to come and see me, it's because they've reached they've reached a point where like this isn't sustainable anymore. This is not sustainable for my own mental well being or my relationship or my partner and we need to we need to address it. Roger that. So second percentage question. I'm mm-hmm. gonna have a third, so I lied. What percentage of people come to you because they wanna help they wanna uh give pleasure to their partner better versus they want to give pleasure to themselves better it's normally very interlinked you know if someone comes because they want to be better partners to their to their um significant other significant other then or others then often that's where it starts and then there's a light bulb moment when they realize that they ha- the reason why they have this complicated relationship with sex or don't want to have sex is because they've been getting pretty average or unpleasant sex their whole life and mm. they've experienced sexual pain and they've experienced you know saying yes when really they meant no and they've got this whole story that they didn't really realize that they had about sex and so it starts for the other person and then they go wait a minute I need to do this for me Roger that. so it's often kind of interlinked and the same the other way around if some, for example you know I had a client who had quite a lot of performance anxiety mm. and experienced you know erectile difficulty and premature ejaculation as a result now did he want to be better in bed for his partner yes absolutely he did he wanted to feel you know more in tune with his masculinity and his ability to to pleasure a woman but he also needed that for himself mm, so for it's, sure it's always it's always a bit of both i think and i don't really know how to ask this question so call me in if there's a better way to traverse it but what percentage of people roughly uh consider the problem at least in the initial sessions to be if there is a problem because of their partner versus because of me like how many people are pointing themselves this way or that way Mm, I'd say most people point to themselves yeah yeah most people internalize these things I think it comes back to that age-old shame again they internalize it and we have again society has created this idea that everyone should just know what to do you know, sex, yes, it is the most natural thing in the world, but that doesn't mean that it's intuitive. Mm. And actually, you know, I always say that good lovers are made, not born. Like, it's a skill just like any other, and we have to learn how to be good in bed because we have to learn, you know, what our body needs and what we like and how to ask for it and how to find our voice and do all of that when there's someone else in front of us as well and learn about their body and what they need. And all of that is a skill that you can't just learn through trial and error and watching porn. Like it's something which Mm. you genuinely just need to learn. Um, And if you haven't been able to do that for one reason or another, through often shame and Mm. silencing and awkwardness and embarrassment, then you often internalize that. You know, oh, I'm not good in bed or I'm a bad lover or I'm selfish. And people use all of these really loaded terms. And I'm just like, go easy on yourself. You're you're none of these things. You just don't have Mm. the tools yet because no one's taught them no one teaches us them there's so much to learn about yourself through the physical exploration with other and i i've considered myself you know deeply learning about this topic always and i look back at maybe some of the approaches i had and go and think to myself i wish i handled that better Mm. and you know i'm a I would like to consider myself an incredibly conscientious and moral male versus the general pop. 
by no means perfect, but constantly trying to do better, particularly in regard to my relationships and respect toward women as a, my mum raised me almost on her own and she to this day is still my best friend and I just honour her um, more than anything in the world. And I think that love then extends to trying to celebrate and um, be an ally to the other females in my life. Now, when that pertains to sexual partners, whether that be while I'm single or in a relationship, um, as I said, there are moments where I'm like, God, I wish I had approached that different, but I always learn and grow as a result of it. One of the things that I find interesting now, I've never actually spoken about this before, so this is kind of new to me, is that before I touch a girl intimately for the first time or and or we have sex for the first time, I will ask her, can I touch you there? Mm. And then I'll say, do you want to have sex? Awesome. And that is something that I now make as kind of a rule. But it's it's interesting what happens in the practical reality of that because some girls have reacted to that with like a, wow, thanks so much for asking. That's really respectful. Thanks for not assuming. Other girls are like, why are you asking? Like, what a vibe kill. Be masculine. Take me. Mm. You know, this is supposed to be a moment that you lead. Mm. And my reflection is, I don't want to stop doing it. I think if you're doing that every single time you're about to engage with a sexual partner, like, you know, multiple times down the track, it's like, dude, you know, lead, be a man, which is where I want to naturally get to. Like, I I, I want to be a pursuing male who um, feels in control. But I I don't want to assume that that's the position I get straight off the bat. I want to earn that level of safety. So Mm. do you have any thoughts or reflections on that practice? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic practice, especially as you say, when it's your first sexual encounter with these people. Um, It's actually law now in New South Wales that Mm. affirmative consent is the law, which means you have to get verbal, you know, consent, not just a give something a go and and wait for the no or actually I didn't like that Mm. so it's what you're doing is not only morally and ethically great it's actually the law Mm. um but more than that you know words are just one form of language people can communicate in lots of different ways but when you don't know someone that well you don't know their language Mm. so by the time you've someone's partner for multiple sexual encounters you can probably read their body language Mm pretty you know a lot better than on that first encounter so you can start to you know dance that dance together and work out different ways of initiating that feel fun and playful and explorative and exciting for both of you but before you've done that yeah lead with safety because in order for great pleasure and arousal to build the body needs to feel safe 100 percent, and i think sometimes men don't understand because we are usually the more physically dominant um that because a man doesn't necessarily ever feel unsafe or incredibly rarely in a sexual encounter with a woman uh they don't know what it feels like to need to feel safe first because that's their default Mm. so they can't relate to the feeling of a woman who might be feeling unsafe as the default and move towards safety Mm. and um that's why like what we've been talking about here, I think being explicit, the earlier it is, the more explicit consent should be. Absolutely. And then the more comfortable something gets, the more you can read someone's body language and not be like, do you want to have sex now? It just naturally emerges spontaneously. Totally. totally. And some people don't even realize that they are, their body isn't feeling safe. 
Mm. You know, our mind-body connection, we're not taught a lot of embodiment and embodiment's essentially listening to the body, listening to those signals your body's sending you. So if you think about when you're nervous, you know, some people might get a tight chest or a tight throat or, you know, feel it in different parts of their body. That's listening to the signals that your body is sending you. And often we're not very good at doing that. And so your body might be sending signals of we something feels off, we don't feel safe, we're not sure, we need to slow things down. And unless you're pretty in tune with your body, you might just be sort of saying yes and going ahead with things faster than maybe your body is telling you. And so having someone say, do you want to have sex? Mm. Is sometimes the pause that that person needs to go, do I? Actually, no. Can yeah. we slow this down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's also giving people a chance to self-reflect as well rather than you know go with the go with the flow and maybe move faster than they're ready for beautifully said and i also think based on my experience if i think about the what we train and coach in from a mental health conversation perspective around connection we talk how that it's not just the words that you say like i, I can teach you the perfect script to be able to allow someone to open up about their depression mm -hmm. however you could say those words and they not open up and largely because the delta, the missing magic is the energy that you bring to those mm. words. That speaks more volumes because we're not just listening through our ears. Our brain has built in bullshit detectors and all that other stuff. So I think with regard to sex, it's not just asking a female for consent. If you're a male, it's the tone and energy that you bring to that question. If it's angry, if it's if you're caught up in the moment because your hormones are rushing to your genitals and you're really horny, I think a man can maybe ask for things in ways that are leading questions and then not leaving room for a true no Absolutely. if it needs to be there. And I think a lot of that's communicated in energy. Like, no, I genuinely am okay with your response. Mm. And a woman will feel that more than they'll hear that. Would you mm. agree? Oh, absolutely. I can't remember the percentage of how much communication is nonverbal, yeah. you know, and how little is actually the words that you choose and how most of it is, you know, the way in which you say it, the posture of your body language, the intensity of your gaze, all of that says a lot mm. more than the exact words you happen to choose to phrase what you're saying. Um, and when is that sort of more felt in sex, you know, the good and the bad, mm. you know, an amazing eye contact set, you know, can set the heart racing in a great way far more than you know a certain word could so absolutely I agree it's the energy of a person that often makes you feel safe or unsafe yeah but I thought it was interesting you talking about this idea of being able to say no mm. because it's actually a, a muscle that not that many people have flexed mm. um during sex um and so just practicing how to actually do that is often a lot harder than people realize, like how to actually say to someone, actually, no, I don't like that, or please slow down, or, you know, I've changed my mind, can you touch me here instead? Yeah. You know, those are muscles that people haven't really used, or lots of people haven't really used, and so that is often the first step to get them to not just tolerate okay sex, but end up getting amazing, perfect, you know, incredible touch and intimacy. Four words you just said then that we just need to hear right now. I've changed my mind. Mm. Huge, because often we think so binary mm. in every topic, let alone sex. And maybe a, a woman or a man, but particularly women might feel almost pre-committed if they say yes that they're like shit i've already said yes now i'm going to look like xyz and i think it's totally okay to say hey i've changed my mind mm -hmm. just like how i thought that i wanted a chocolate milk and now i want a kombucha <laughs> you're allowed to change your mind right yeah, 
And often we want to want something. Yeah. You're like, yeah, that sounds fun. And then you start doing the fun thing and you're like, you know what? My body is just not playing ball with me today. Yeah. You know, and we were talking about this earlier, the interrelation between, you know, your sex life, your mental health, your physical health, your general self-confidence. It's also related. And often we think we can just snap our fingers and be like, yeah, I'm in the mood for sex. I want sex. I'll mm. have sex. Mm. And then our body doesn't isn't doing the thing that we want it to. We are stuck in our head. We're keeping thinking about work. You know, our body's not reacting the way that we want it to. We're like, what's going on? I wanted this. Mm. And it's often, you know, if you're very stressed at work or your mental health's having a tough time or you haven't been sleeping well or there's all of these other things going on in your life, we call them your breaks in the sex education world rather than your accelerators, which are your turn-ons. Those breaks are often acting without your even conscious awareness of them and make sex and arousal and intimacy way harder. So you might consent to something and go, yeah, let's do it. Mm. And you start it and you have to go, you know what, I wanted it, but it's not happening. What are the two most common breaks and what are the two most common accelerators you observe in most people? Oh, I just don't think there's an answer. And that's what's so wonderful about human sexuality. It's so broad and so diverse and and that's why it's so exciting it's so unique you know some that might you know surprise you that people don't really think about you know when people think of their turn-ons they think about you know things that they enjoy their partner doing or you know physical qualities they enjoy in someone else or you know specific sex positions or Mm. sex acts whereas they don't really think about the sort of bigger picture outside of all of those things like Mm. do they like you know for example, a huge break for a lot of people is being cold. A huge accelerator is being warm because it, your body starts to relax. Or a big break for a lot of people is getting two in their head mm. about one thing or another. And so a big accelerator for a lot of people is putting on music because it gives your brain something to focus on that isn't all of your inner monologue and inner dialogue. So I think that's a big thing is if you are thinking about your breaks and accelerators, go a lot bigger than just you know, the the here and now, think more more macro, micro, which way around is it? Think bigger picture. Yeah, macro. <laughs> yeah. Because often, yeah, there's a lot bigger things at play when it comes to why arousal, like why something was extremely hot for you mm. in one situation and why it wasn't in another. Yeah, wow. I'm just taking a moment to, to let all that in <laughs> and, and know which way to go. I think where I want to go with that is asking about when there is a break and you can sense it how to best bring that up with your partner where Mm. you know they're not feeling it you know you're not feeling it or you know we're not feeling it where do you go from there sometimes it is as powerful to voice it Mm. you know if for example the break is and sometimes the break's really easy to fix Really easy to fix. It's like, I'm cold. I've been Wear thinking some about it for 20 <laughs> minutes. I'm getting the heater. You know, or you know what? I've been thinking about the kids walking in. I'm just going to go lock the door. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a really simple, short fix. And then you're like, I'm back. <laughs> you know, and voicing it is powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not a, a quick fix or it takes a bit of discussion, you know, for example, your partner's doing something and for whatever reason that day, it's just not doing it for you. People are often quite nervous to say that because people get very defensive you know because I have a lot of you know oh, if my partner says they don't like what I'm doing or asks me to change what I'm doing then it means that I'm bad in bed or I'm doing something wrong mm. and so 
the most powerful thing is just to normalize those sorts of conversations. It's like, mm. that's not working for me today. Can we try this? Or that was great. Can can I now go down on you? Mm. Can I do something else? And normalizing that constant dialogue that sometimes needs to happen, especially when there are a lot of breaks present. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest breaks I have noticed, even listening to friends and stuff talk about their relationships, um, but I'm going to first person this and say my sexual experiences, is also the character trait, headspace or relationship dynamic that you're in at that time and the theme that you're writing, the chapter that you're writing at the time. Like, you know, there could be a chapter where you're both really on the same page mm. and emotionally you feel really connected and um, physically you're, you're healthy at that time so you, your, your libido is higher and everything's just working. And again, I, I know that I've kind of gone around this point a few times, but it's something that I find to be really true that I wish m more men knew, which is the racy, crazy sex life that I think a lot of guys envision, envision because they watch porn may or may not be possible, but it's certainly going to be more probable if you start with safety first. Like mm. going straight to that crazy sex life isn't usually realistic nor s healthy because a lot of women especially are going to want to go via I'm okay here. Mm. So how how do you... Well, first of all, would you agree that excitement and exploration is best done from a base of safety? Yes, is the short answer. However, I also think that inherently eroticism thrives in the opposite in many times. Say many more. Ways. I'm super interested. Well, safety, comfort, security, love, intimacy often live in a separate camp to passion, desire, excitement. Yep. And it's what a lot of long-term couples struggle with because when you start a relationship, often there's a lot of the passion and the excitement and there's not very much security. You know, there's mm. a lot of, will they text me back? Do they even like me? Will their mum hate me? You know, what if we move in together and it's awful? There's a lot of uncertainty. And that uncertainty actually acts as a bit of a rocket fuel to sex and intimacy often. There's a sex therapist um, called Jack Moran who created a formula for uh, human arousal. And he said that arousal is attraction plus obstacles. Like we need some form of tension or novelty or newness for to have the hottest sex of our lives basically. And it's not a coincidence that so many people's hottest sexual fantasies or best sexual experiences were in those slightly wilder, early relationship days or when things felt you know it was just so spontaneous and they just ripped my clothes off me and mm -hmm. we did it behind the car we didn't care who saw you know these sorts of stories are what comes up and the safety security the love side of things the longer a relationship goes on is what becomes more and more embedded we become more and more secure we get more and more you know secure in our future together which is fantastic mm. but at the cost often of the passion mm -hmm. and that's what esther perel who's an amazing sex therapist talks a lot she's about oh, yeah just i've met her she's it, awesome have you yeah <gasps> say <good>. more yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh no yeah, she's queen. great but yeah so she talks about that a lot in her book meeting in captivity is this 
this polarity, I suppose, of these two needs that we often have. Mm. We want to be seen as these adventurous, passionate souls, but we also want the security and the comfort of love. I feel like Sex Life, the TV show, was like literally the writers sat down and went, we are going to portray a woman conflicted between security and excitement and see which wins. Yeah, you you have to. And (laughs) you could literally just write on that guy's forehead, security, like husband, loving, finance, dude with the kids and then there was this ironically australian musician fuck boy mm-hmm. ambivalent emotionally distant mm-hmm. guy and she was toing and froing between yeah and the where i got to with that show as an example is i'm like i don't think with enough work you need to choose i think that the goal And hopefully realistic goal, whether that be monogamy or not, ideally monogamy for a lot of people who are in this situation would like to believe. And I I hope that you can have that excitement and you can have stability. And I think the the point I was saying before, I totally agree with you that that obstacles and excitement and spontaneity are key. Like, God, yeah. Yeah, accelerator for sure. The best sex I've ever had in my life is the most passionate, the most charged, Mm -hmm. the least planned, the least structured. Um, But what I am saying, just to tie a loop on the previous before we get into the, the split of the dichotomy, I think that a lot of people, particularly men, I could be wrong, but they want to go straight there. Like on the second date, they want to fuck behind the car. Mm. And I think that it's, in in my mind, I just wish men knew more. You can get there for sure, but you're going to get there better if you go via authentic safety first. Would you agree with that? Again, yes, but I also don't find it often that helpful to generalize by gender. A lot of women would love to fuck behind the car on the second date as well. So I don't think it's Mm. often that helpful to do gender gender generalizations, especially when talking about a topic where it's so often been generalized by gender, you know, the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus Mm. um, argument when actually a lot of these things that we're saying, you'd have women listening and going, no, I want that or, you know, and and same with men going, no, I I really need safety. Mm. So I think it's more of a question about people rather than men versus women. It's like, what do people need? What do people want? And yes, I think some people listening in would go, no, I'm, I'm all for the sex behind the car on the second date. Thanks. That's exciting. And a lot of people would go, no, that is not me. I need to feel safe. And for me, safety is knowing that person for X amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's so different for everyone. And to your point earlier around upbringing and attachment styles yeah, and yeah, all of that, sure. if you genuinely are someone that feels pretty safe in yourself and also has a big value of courage and taking risks and Mm -hmm. those sorts of things you might be more likely to put yourself into certain situations where that does charge you up in in an exciting way and take more risks you know than other people who perhaps value and need security more in order to feel safe in order to get to that point yeah i hear you and um i totally totally get that it's a very unique thing and is fully loaded with all the, the things you just said like attachment and I'd, I'd like to know what, what your view is on that. Like, A, this is a big one. Do you believe in monogamy? Um, <laughs> and B, do you believe that excitement, passion, all the good stuff can stay with stability and safety? 
So to answer your first question, I think monogamy is a wonderful choice when it is a choice. I think the problem with our society is we present monogamy as the only option. Mm. For a lot of people, you're raised thinking that the only way of having both a, a stable life in the domestic world that we acceptable. have painted is yeah. acceptable and appropriate you know for all of these different reasons is monogamy hmm. and it isn't something which often people choose they just sort of find themselves within it and then are, you know, don't know why they're unhappy or they can't you know live a happy existence because they've sort of been forced into a box which doesn't fit them hmm. so monogamy is a great choice if it is the choice that you make but there's also so many other wonderful choices out there um and i don't know if this is a very popular view but it's a view that i hold so sure. i'll share it anyway i sort of put sometimes your identity when it comes to monogamy polyamorous open fluid monogamish on the same kind of spectrum that people often put sexuality you know it isn't something which is like oh, i'm polyamorous or i'm monogamous you know it's this whole world in between and often you don't really know where you fit until you've given other structures a bit of a go and tried different types of relating to people. And some people very much do know what they are. And they're like, no, I'm, I know I identify as polyamory. It's not, a, it's not a, it's a choice. It's who I am. It's a part of my identity. Whereas other people are still exploring and still working it out. And the problem, the only problem I have with monogamy is it often robs people who would love to do that exploring from those options because they don't know that there are other options out there and then they resort to unethical non-monogamy which is of course cheating rather than ethical non-monogamy which can be done really joyfully and with every person's uh, consent um, so if you're not sure where you fit go and go and chat to some people who know more about these topics than you do and hear from them because again a big issue I think with all of this world is there aren't that many voices and role models for other ways of choosing to conduct your relationships mm. and so we have to model them on just the successful or unsuccessful monogamous relationships that we see I love I love people who are real and I love hearing statements like that from you which the way you say it isn't charged like I can tell you've done a lot of work to get to the point where you're at because Usually when we're defending a view that's non-traditional, there's like a bite behind it. Like, I wish everyone could see my perspective <laughs> because there's still shame under there. Mm. But uh, you, you are so at peace with your exploration of this subject. It is truly commendable. Um, and I'm learning so much already. So thank you for, for what we've spoken about and what we will. For I'm going to ask binary questions, not because I believe in this approach to interviews <laughs> or life, but I think it's good fodder to help get to the place where we want to be, which is an open discussion. What's the number one, you're going to say there is none, but I'm going to ask anyway, <laughs> what's the number one thing that you have seen to help that, that enables monogamy to work well? And what's the number one thing you have seen that helps non-monogamy work well? Mm. Can the answer be the same for both? Yeah. I think it's communication. Yeah. You know, non-monogamous people are very good at it, or often very good at it, because they have to be, because there's a lot more people to talk to. Ethical non-monogamy. Ethical yeah. non-monogamy, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So anyone who's tried ethical non-monogamy, open relating in any of its forms, 
you become a pretty good communicator pretty quickly because you have to. There's a lot of different people's emotions and opinions and time constraints and different desires and life views and values and goals and dreams to take into account. So before mm. you know it, you're talking a lot about all of these things. And in monogamy, often people aren't as good <laughs> as communicating about all of those topics. And I think that is so often the key for a happy, uh, ongoing, long monogamous relationship is the ability because ultimately two people if they're going to have a long life together are going to change a lot in that lifetime they mm. will go through lots of different life Amen. stages and you know parts of themselves will come out that they didn't expect you know through all of these different life stages and if you're going to stay together you're going to have to work out how to navigate not just the people that you were when you met but the people that you'll continue to become and you can't often do that without a lot of compromise, a lot of work and a lot of communication to work out what's going on and have sort of state of the union conversations <laughs> pretty regularly to work out, are we still happy? What's working? What's not? How can we be better? Yeah. Um, and that's what I think a lot of non-monogamous people learn quite early because there's more need of it. Yeah, you're on. forced to communicate. Um, oh, sorry, you're prompted to communicate more. Yeah. W more binary questions that you're going to hate. Uh, <laughs> what's the number one? So if we say that communication is probably the biggest breakdown in any relationship type, what would you see as the biggest mistake, problem, barrier within communication that you see in relationship? Yeah, I think it's very easy to fall into sort of cycles of communication styles with a partner. You know, for all sorts of reasons, someone becomes, you know, the attacker, I say in inverted commas, the person leaning forward and wanting to have a conversation about a t certain topic, and the other partner becomes the leaner away, the person who gets put onto the defensive, the person mm. who feels like they have to defend themselves, and falling into that cycle of, you know, criticism, defend, criticism, defend, which is, you know, a very unhealthy cycle to fall into. Um, and that's just one example of the kinds of destructive cycles in, in communication style that can really undo undo a partnership because then these topics, these areas of conflict become stuck. You know, we can't move forward on these topics anymore. Every time they come up, people instantly go into that that's that pattern of feeling critical criticized or feeling, you know, that Attacking. your partner doesn't care. Yeah. So I think noticing those kinds of cycles or those topics that cause you to go into an unhealthy flooded state of communication and where certain areas of conflict become stuck and working out okay how do we how do we unstuck unstick these these areas because all couples will disagree yeah you know it's impossible to not have areas of disagreement disagreements and conflicts are not inherently unhealthy what's unhealthy is not being able to talk about to them resolve. with empathy and understanding and just wanting to hear and understand your partner's perspective Huge. it's not about you know fixing the problem because often the problem can't be fixed you just have different politics or you just have different values when it comes to money often we can't fix that problem but we can hear and we can talk and we can understand and it is couples who can do that really well that have more of a chance to to move forward beautiful what's the what do you think is the most therapeutic or beneficial question you can ask your partner? <laughs> can I bring it back to sex? Because it really is sure, more yeah, my expertise yeah, yeah, than uh, couples counselling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Makes sense. <laughs> I think when it comes to sex, 
the best thing you can ask, well, a couple of things. One really easy thing that you can do is to get into the habit of after any form of sex or intimacy is turn around to each other and say, what was your favorite bit? You know, what was your highlight? What did you enjoy about that? You know, because when I say to people, oh, communication is so important, talking about sex is so important, I go, this feels really difficult. I can't, can't do any of that. But you can definitely do this, you know. And it'll start the flow of conversation, talking about what turns you on, what turns you off, what you enjoy, what you're curious about. So to start there, you know, turn to each other and go, sure. what was your favorite bit? Mm-hmm. And start asking open-ended questions during sex as well. So rather than saying things like, does this feel good? Or do you enjoy this? Where most people will go, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is telling you nothing. Yeah, you're getting sure. no information yeah. there. Like start op- asking yeah, sure questions that's actually giving you information about that person and like what they actually enjoy and that's the way you actually learn rather than just interesting so instead of does this feel good you might say which part of this feels good yeah or how could i make this even better okay yeah. you know is it is it harder faster or slower for you mm. you know do you prefer it like this like this can you show me what you like you know all of these sorts of things you're getting information as opposed to just like uh, validation how does a person ask a question without appearing like they're giving away the lead? What do you mean give? Ah, as in they love to feel in control um, and they don't want to surrender that control but still get information. That and... Uh, I mean, like the answer to everything, which is a balance, intuition, reading the moment. I know that that's going to be the answer. I guess I'm just <laughs> I'm just walking down that path a little bit because there is a balance sometimes between asking, how can I make this better? And then, again, I've had feedback in bed, which is like, don't ask. I want you to take me. Well, just then make do it this. more dominant. You know, yeah. I'm only going to spank you if you beg for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can still seek consent from someone in a dominant way in yeah. a way that both excites you both you mm. know if you're someone that loves to be in charge and they're someone that loves just to be ravished and taken yeah you can still get consent in that headspace you just have to be a bit more creative about it yeah dominant questions yeah 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 dominant consent dominant you know, consent possible. that's a cool expression i've never heard that before <laughs> i just made it up point <laughs> that here we just got that ip booked <laughs> um and the the relationship between mental health and sex must be, well, I, I know is high, but in your work must be quite high because well, it works kind of two way. If you have depression in men, you might be more likely to have low libido. For, for women, it could be similar. If, you, if, if, if they're anxious, they could see a reduced low libido. If you have PTSD, that brings about a whole bunch of traumatic response maybe in the bedroom. Uh, and how do you work with mental health issues when you're integrating sexual therapy? Absolutely. So my work is trauma-informed, which and what Beautiful. that means is that if trauma does come up in session, I have the skills to recognize it, to see it, and to help that person ground and come back to themselves. But at that point, I would refer them on to a sex therapist who has who is a registered psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of my work is forward-facing. It's not about unpacking trauma and trying to work through traumatic experiences. It's just about how to give people the education and the tools and the skills that they need to get a more happy and healthy relationship with sex and intimacy again. Um, but outside of 
you know, serious trauma like that, mental health, emotional factors, psychological factors, they always come into session. You know, you can't talk about sex education without the whole person coming into the room because these are topics that are inherently emotional. And as you say, your mental health, your physical health, impact your libido, your sex drive, your relationship with your body, all of these things, they're all in the same pot. (laughs) You Mm. can't separate them. Um, And so it is just so individual depending on what, where that person is you know so often I work with women who've never orgasmed yeah. and they just want to come and they want a magic formula to how to have an orgasm and it's you know that's not how it works first I have to get to know that person mm. because what's causing someone not to be able to have an orgasm you know might be okay you know have you heard of vibrators have yeah. you heard <laughs> of this stroke you know yeah. but for many people it's become an issue over years and years of isolation and frustration and feeling broken. And that is the work that we need to do first is Mm. how to make them have a happy relationship with pleasure again and not feel broken. So I can't even remember what your question was. Mental health and sex. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to separate. Changing the relationship to pleasure, you know, that, that really resonated with me, um, again, based on, my mental health history directly related to sex versus the sexual implications of a mental health condition Uh, and uh, having friends who are sexual abuse survivors knowing the work that they go through and and choose to do in order to regain their pleasure um, it, it it's it's incredibly tough for a lot of people to to do that and to allow themselves to feel that again and i'm not sure if you can share a story of hope for for someone that's going through that around mm. a client that's anonymized that has mm. walked a similar path yeah absolutely i do work with people who've had really really traumatic and complicated relationships with intimacy and sex you know at times in their lives and at ages where they had no autonomy or control of what was happening to them and as I said before I'm not a psychologist so I do not work with them as they unpack and explore all of those experiences but when they're at a state and at an ability to start wanting to learn the tools for moving forward I often work alongside a registered psychologist who's seeing them for that support and then for me separately on giving them more explicit tools for how to feel safe in their body again. So things like consent and um, teaching them how to say no, how to say yes, how to slow down, how to ask for what they want, how to you know, feel for their own boundaries and feel confident in those boundaries again. And slowly, 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 with as we we're talking about right at the start of this, with a space of safety, mm. they'll, they, they do start to feel more at home in their own skins but it yeah it's it's a it's a journey for sure and it's a journey that I only undertake with people when they've also got a great support network around them because it's yeah it's not a a a linear road either do you believe that if we can repair our relationship to pleasure we can live a more erotic life not just have a more erotic sex life. Um, Some of the sexual teachers I follow, Esther Perel, but others, and even in my degree, 
and spiritual leaders talk about, you know, living erotically mm. because so much of nature is erotic if you look at it and it's incredible and that orgasm and pleasure in a sexual domain doesn't necessarily need to exist between two people, doesn't necessarily need to be pertained to sexual actions. We can feel turned on by certain aspects of our life just by existing. Totally. You What's know, your views ta- on that? Yeah, you're talking to the beliefs and practices of you know thousands of years of tantra right 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 you know, tantra <laughs> is a, a spiritual practice that is not it's only neo tantra which is the focus in sexuality but tantra as a practice has existed as a spiritual philosophy for much much longer um and it is one of the only spiritual practices that believes that sexuality is this inherent part of you know our life force of what makes us human of what gives us energy and confidence and um exactly what you're talking about is 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 how you sort of start to tap into that energy through tantra um and it's just little things a lot of people who come to me who feel like they've lost their sex life their desire for sex their libido they often talk about feeling i've lost a part of themselves and the idea of getting back to sex is this huge chasm of like this is where I feel now and they use words like dead or numb or broken and you know that erotic life force and sexuality is just so far away from where I feel like I'm at now and so it's like how do I get them to start to slowly take those little stepping stones it's often in really small micro doses of pleasure mm. you know it's doing a daily pleasure practice it's got nothing to do with masturbation it's about savoring anything that feels good in your body so instead of just having a hot shower go and like massage that shampoo in your scalp and just really appreciate the pleasure of that moment mm. or you know savoring that chocolate that you have each night like do something a day that brings you pleasure that awakens your five senses and you'll start to notice pleasurable things again you'll recognize that your body can feel all of these amazing mm. sensations and that is the same idea of can you bring erotic energy into your life? Yes. Yeah. You know, just walking down the street with the sun on your face when you've got that vitality inside you, that's probably because an accelerator is happening. Yeah. You know, you're probably someone that loves sunshine. <laughs> you know, you, you talk about walking down the street and there are times when I'm like, what, what's, what's a male, this is a dumb question, what's the equivalent to a male pheromone? Is there such a thing? I think they're the same. Okay. I think it's pheromones for everyone. So there are some times when I'll be walking down the street and I'm like, damn, I've got my jacket on. But, you know, the the the, uh, the metaphorical jacket where I'm like, I don't know what I've done today, but I can feel I'm on fire. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> am I ovulating? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> the equivalent to where I'll be getting a female gaze and I can tell that it's that type of gaze and I'm like, Yes. Okay. What have I done? I need to audit this shit and do it every day. I need to bottle this. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I need to like rinse and repeat this formula. And then there are yeah. other days when I'm like, I should be wearing my pheromone jacket, but I'm definitely <laughs> not on today. Yeah. Do you think that that's a thing? Like, we're feeling it. Yeah. Sometimes we're getting lots of. Uh, and is there a way to bottle that? Oh, if only there was. Yeah. I don't have an answer. We for would be yet. millionaires. We would be millionaires. God damn it. We need to bottle the pheromone, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> but also you need to recognize what is going on for me in that moment. Mm. You know, what accelerators are present and can I replicate some of these? So yeah. a lot of people, you know, in in client sessions, I bring them on a bit of a journey back. And I'm like, oh, when was the last time you felt really sexual or you were wearing a pheromone jacket? Like, what was going on for you? And a lot of people, it's on holiday. 
Mm. And it's like, what if, or people have never had an Free. orgasm except for when they're on holiday, or they always have painful penetration except for one week of the year on holiday. Mm. And I'm like, well, what's happening on holiday? And it's often because they leave all of their breaks at home, the dirty laundry, you know, all of these stresses with work, all of the breaks remain at home, and all of your accelerators come on holiday with you, you know, wearing the cute summer dresses, the salt spray on your skin, you know, quality time with your partner, sunshine on your face eating and drinking great food and before you know it you're having great pleasurable pain-free sex so I think sometimes when you're wearing that pheromone jacket maybe just be like all right what has happened for me today Mm. like what is going on right now like how can I channel some of that and I think it's to to the metaphor or story that you just said it's not just what's going on in my life today or at the moment as in I'm exercising I'm even I'm on holiday, it's what that represents. Mm. I am free. I am open. I am abundant. I have a a positive and optimistic outlook in life. Because sometimes it's, well, very often, it's the vibration Mm -hmm. that you're putting out way more than the physical attributes or the cognitive tick boxes that is actually attracting people into your life. Absolutely. You're walking down that street with a spring in your step and people can see it. Mm. And, you know, often the person that you are, when you think, when was the last time that I felt really like sexually confident and free is the same person as, you know, that person walking down the street or that person on holiday. And it's because it's aligned to those values. Mm. You know, it was when I was being courageous and spontaneous and I wasn't scared of moving to that other country. Mm. When that was happening, I also felt really sexual. Like they're often the same person. (laughs) They are. And there's a word that sits under there for me, what I'm hearing and from the research that I can see in a lot of the literature, the most, the number one universal principle that is deemed attractive, uh, well, at least from women to men that I can read, is confidence. Mm. And I think confidence comes, it, this is kind of a self-fulfilling cycle because when we, our mental health is low, particularly if we're feeling depressed, confidence is the fucking last thing we have. There is a huge internal self-sabotaging narrative. And so to kind of claw that back and to like yourself again, let alone feel like you're hot or lovable, can feel like a country mile away. Mm. And um, have you helped people climb out of that dark hole and get their confidence back? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it comes back to all of that thing we're talking about, about sexual shame, you know, body confidence or just confidence in who you are in the bedroom with things like performance anxiety, not feeling like, you know, a sexual person. A lot of people don't feel like they deserve pleasure is what it comes down to. Yes. You know, and after a few sessions, the crux of it, the core of all of these different things gets down to, I'm not worthy of that. Mm. That's for other people. That's not for me. Mm. And it's just like, oh, you know, that's what we as a society have created by the silencing, by the shame, by the awkwardness, is we create all of these beautiful people who at the heart of themselves don't feel like they deserve to connect to others, to feel good and pleasurable in their own skins. And it's a heartbreaking thing to to see. Mm. And then, yeah, the journey to to self-confidence and self-love often starts with just a bit of neutrality. You know, I think the flip of the coin of the body positive movement is it puts body positivity on such a high, high plateau. And people are like, how could I ever get to body positivity? You know, I loathe myself. And it's like, well, let's not aim for body positivity. Let's aim for body neutrality first. You know, not 
hating your body, but instead just accepting the skin that. that you find yourself in is a lot more achievable for lots of people love than that. this idea of body positivity. Um, there was something else I was going to say about that, but I can't remember what it was. You're spitting out wisdom left, right and center, so <laughs> we'll give you a pass on that one. <laughs> Let's talk about something that I hope is, is a fun topic for a lot of people, but it can be very unfun for a lot of people because they don't feel like they can express it, and that is the topic of fetish. Mm. Uh, oh, I love these topics. Yeah. So Knuckle in. No, so I'm buckled <laughs> in. I'm ready to rock and roll. No pun intended. Strapped in. Um, before we get into the kind of the nuts and bolts, I want to know, the psych- is there a psychology agreed kind of philosophy as to why fetishes exist or how they come about? Could I- Take us back one step and Please. define the difference between kink and fetish first. Yes. Because I think it's something which people don't really think about. So kink, which is more common than a fetish, is mm-hmm. essentially anything that makes sex more enjoyable and adds more erotic charge and energy to the interaction. It's it's a step beyond like a preference. So, you know, I might have a preference for um, certain sex acts, but when I add a sort of kink to it, it's like, oh, that makes it really exciting. So can I, let's quiz me. So a preference might be, um, I I like to be on top versus on the bottom. And a kink could be, I want my hair pulled whilst I'm on top. Is is that right? Yeah, exactly. And what's funny about kinks is it's so subjective. Because often kinks have to be, and I'm saying this in inverted commas, it's a podcast so I can't use my fingers, but normal. (laughs) we got cameras. Oh, normal. (laughs) And I hate ever using the word normal when it comes to sex. But kink, the whole purpose of it in some ways is subverting what's seen as normal. But then what Mm, is normal? So some people might see anal as a kink because they haven't you know, talked about anal sex or been exposed to anal sex with that many people. So I go, oh, anal's a bit kinky. Yeah. Whereas if you're a very sex positive person, you might just see anal sex as just another preference. You know, yep. I enjoy oral, I enjoy anal. I, you know, it's not a kinky thing. Got it. Same with, you know, toys. Lots of people don't view toys as kinky. Whereas, you know, if you asked your grandma, she might think sex toys are kinky. So mm-hmm. this idea of what is or is not kinky is really different depending on what your standard of normal is. And so normal... So quite a lot of common kinks are things around power. So that's where BDSM comes into into play. So that's bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadis, sadism and masochism. So all of that is about exchange of power. And so see. those are quite common kinks. Okay. So kink is often correlated with power dynamics. Often, yeah. Being in a position of or being in a submission of. Yeah. And just before, because I can't wait to get to fetishes, but just <laughs> while we're on kink, I've heard of people who are in a position of power whose kink is to not be in a position of power. Can Mm -hmm. you talk to me about why that is? Mm. So sex is essentially the adult playground, right? It's the only place we as adults get to play. Mm. It's the only place we get to step into different roles that we don't get to enact day to day in our lives. And we can do that with consent and playfulness and it can be very joyful. And so for a lot of people, you know, uh, power exchange or kink um, is just another form of play and if day to day I have to make all of these hard decisions I have to always come from a place of responsibility and power it's really fun to abandon some of that power so it's abandonment of the traditional sometimes character sometimes for some yeah. people 
For other people, it just might be a big part of who they are, and it's always been a core part of their eroticism. But they it just can't display job, it during the day. Yeah, it doesn't matter what job they came. Okay, They've always yeah. been someone that enjoys being submissive sexually. Um, and I'll talk to you more about the psychology of kink and fetish in a minute because I, I know you want to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, but also kinks could be anything. You know, you could have a foot kink. You could have a lingerie kink. You could have a, you know, tit kink. <laughs> but people yeah. don't really see that as a kink because it's so normalized. Got it. Enjoying boobs. So anything can be a kink for you if it adds a specific extra charge of sexual enjoyment to sex. Whereas a fetish is the most common uh, definition of a fetish that a lot of sex therapists talk about is the difference between enjoying a kink and needing a fetish. So people who have a fetish for something can only get aroused and turned on if that fetish is either being fantasized about or being acted upon. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a choice and a, and, a, and a desire and it's something which actually they need in order to build arousal. So it's pretty different. Great explanation. Thank you. That's super duper helpful to as a framework to view things through. Um, and let's use something that could be on a spectrum. Mm. So um, feet, mm -hmm. very trending thing, yeah. might always have been that way. But I feel like my Instagram is there's like ads for maybe, a, God, who knows what I'm clicking on. <laughs> as I'm saying this, I'm like, have I brought this on myself? I know. Um, well, I, shameless, I'm a big uh, believer in not shame or fetish, uh, sorry, not kink or fetish shaming. Yeah, don't I yuck my yum. No, exactly. <laughs> I personally don't have a, a foot fetish. However, I have seen ads for it more and more. There's like this feet finder app that mm -hmm. um, some of the meme accounts that I follow have to been posting. And, but, so if we look at something like feet, um, it, it can move from a, fetish, uh, from a kink to a fetish based on the explanation of a want now is a need. Mm -hmm. Given that that's such a popularized one, is there something about the foot that the ancient Romans discovered that just happened <laughs> to be incredibly erotic that we don't know about? Why? It's funny. I can't remember who told me this. Another sex educator. And so I haven't read the report myself. So don't quote me on this, but read something about why are, is foot fetishes so common? Mm. And it was something around the formative years of, you know, being a child and crawling around feet. And if someone, if you're got a caregiver who maybe didn't pick you up that often you know the feet become the part of the body that you see and you are mm. attached to more interesting who knows who knows there's a really um amazing i think i already have quoted him once so you know not on commission but <laughs> jack moran and he in his amazing book the erotic mind talks a lot about why we develop the sexual preferences that we do um and he talks a lot about the formative years in childhood being responsible for why you develop and he calls it your core erotic theme so you're basically your sexual blueprint the what charges you up erotically mm. and he basically creates this model where whatever you're exposed to that perhaps wasn't the most pleasant growing up the mirror image of that almost becomes your eroticism so for example if you're brought up in a very conservative rule-abiding household maybe strict uh, religious ethos, that sort of thing, your uh, eroticism might develop in a way that enjoys rule breaking, it enjoys naughtiness, it enjoys confronting taboos, sure. it enjoys that fear of almost getting caught and oh, there we've got it, we've got an exhibitionist kink. Mm -hmm. And you know, another example is children who 
you know, don't feel like they have a lot of control growing up. Um, and let's face it, what toddler has that much control and autonomy? So, you know, any sort of child could feel out of control growing up. And then your eroticism might form in a way that helps you regain that control as an adult. And hey, presto, you might develop a kink for power exchange, for either giving your control over to someone with consent during sex and submitting, or taking control with consent over someone during sex and dominating. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting book if you're interested in the psychology of why kinks and fetishes and eroticism develops in different ways. Um, a lot of people don't like that concept of, you know, your traumatic experiences become your sexuality because I think it's often welded as a bit of a, a sword, especially in the kink community of only people with traumatic experiences becomes kinky, mm. which is absolutely not true. It's not people don't aren't kinky just because they're trying to heal their past. For some people, absolutely, be, you know, BDSM and kink can be very healing. But it's not the case for everyone. For some, it's just another fun form of exploration. I think a lot of people would feel reluctant to talk to their partner uh, or sexual uh, voyager. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There's my IP, sexual oh, voyager. Um, my voyager in crime. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, if they had a kink or a fetish. Uh, particularly if you're dating someone who you don't think is more like aligned on that spectrum, how does a conversation like that come up in a safe way that doesn't bring shame? Mm. Especially with a fetish, you know, if it's something mm. that you need to build arousal, you know, that's got to be a, a partner, you know, if it's, it's pretty open-minded if they don't share that, that preference at all to have that conversation and navigate whether or not they can both get their sexual needs met mm. together. Um, but even just talking about kinks, yeah, there's a lot of nervousness that would come up sharing sharing your kinks, especially if it sits further outside of what's deemed like a normal kink. And as you say, different kinks are becoming more and more popularized, you know, through porn and through Fifty Shades of Grey and all other mm. sorts of mainstream media. But if you're bringing something up, you're like, I'm pretty sure none of you know this person or none of my circle shared this kink with me. It's pretty vulnerable. It's a pretty vulnerable space to share that with someone. Um, and yeah, honesty, honesty is the best policy, mm. you know, wait, waiting until a time where you feel really close to that person, you feel safe with that person, um, to be that vulnerable with them and go with why it's hot for you. You know, you're not trying to force them to, to share that kink with you. They might be pretty surprised mm -hmm. and often people, when they're surprised, act in a way that once they've had a few days to think about it, they might act differently or respond differently. So take a bit of kindness to their shock as well sometimes i'll come around and respond a bit differently but if you're sharing this with a partner don't expect them to want to do it straight away but instead just focus on why it's hot for you roger you know i enjoy dominance during sex because for me xyz you know sure. i enjoy submission during sex because for me it's all about this feeling of xyz so sharing the why helps to bring in the safety of the what often because yep. it's not about putting pressure on that person to enjoy it too it's just right. like i just want to share why this is exciting for me without trying to make you feel like pressure or obligation Got to it. feel the same way okay rather than just saying i like feet can i suck your toes it's like I like feet. For me, this is what's sexy about them. For me, this is the sort of fantasy that I would have. How I'm do you not feel asking, about I'm not asking you for anything or putting any expectations of you. What do you feel about 
what I've just shared with you. Do you have any questions? Okay. You know, yeah. could that be exciting for you? Could that be hot for you? Could we find a world in which this could be a fun thing to do together? Mm. Um, how are we doing for time, by the way? We need to wrap up. <laughs> okay. Um, damn it. I have so many more questions, <laughs> but I will wrap up. Okay. So, um, I've covered a lot of what I want to, to cover. Um, I'm just going to ask you three final questions, if that's mm -hmm. okay. Um, what is, so a, as we kind of bring this journey home, unfortunately, uh, cause I've enjoyed this topic a lot. And, um, if people want to keep in touch with you, how do they find you online? So my Instagram is my main social media platform. I'm Alice Child Official. And my website is alicechild.com.au. Perfect. And what is one question you wish I'd asked you but I didn't? Ooh, we didn't talk about um, female sexual pleasure responses, which I think is an area that not enough people know about, like mm -hmm. the clitoris, the internal clitoris. Um, and so my advice around if you are someone that owns a vulva or you like to pleasure someone that owns a vulva and you don't know enough about it, go and research some female pleasure anatomy. Um, what makes it pleasurable is nothing to do with, you know, how wet you can get that pussy because you can always use great lube and you should always be using great lube. Mm -hmm. But what actually matters is how engorged you can get that pussy because not many people know, but women get erections too. But all of our erectile tissue or most of our erectile tissue is under the surface of the skin. The tip of the clitoris on the outside of the body is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole organ, a whole clitoris that lives inside the body that's between 7 and 11 centimeters big. And that is what needs to be erect and engorged in order for penetration to feel pleasurable. Wow. Um, and it actually just takes a lot longer than a penis takes to get an erection. So I'm talking 20, 30, 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people rush to penetration way too quickly because they don't give their body enough time to get engorged. And so no wonder sex can feel painful or uncomfortable or just a bit average so yeah time engorgement learn about female pleasure anatomy because it'll really change the game in how you have sex if you are someone with a vulva or have sex with someone with a vulva asking for a friend <laughs> where do we find more information about follow female? me on instagram you're, it's you're, what i talk you're the about place to go. yeah and any sex positive resources to be honest yeah. you know any anyone who talks about the clitoris getting clitorate <laughs> You know, there's, Getting a whole, there's a whole community Dude, awesome. who are just, you know, fighting, fighting the, the good, good fight. fight. Yeah. So, yeah, Love it. we all exist. Very cool. <laughs> um, yes, I'll definitely be reading more and more of, of your stuff to get educated. <laughs> um, what is a mantra that you live by? And to your uh, guidance before, let's keep it in your area where you feel most comfortable. So what's a mantra that you live by with regard to uh, sexual positivity? Oh, my mantra that I live by is probably fear the fear and do it anyway, which is probably not the best mantra when it comes to sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Say I'll more about why, though. Uh, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway is all about pushing your comfort zone and pushing past your you know, boundaries, mm -hmm. whereas I teach almost the opposite in sex education, which is respect your boundaries and listen to them and default to a no, not default to a yes. Mm -hmm. um, so feeling the fear and doing it anyway is probably a mantra that might lead you to accidentally say yes to something that maybe in hindsight you wish you hadn't. So how do we <laughs> how do we feel, feel the fear and do it anyway and also have correct boundaries and stay safe? 
um, with good safe words, <laughs> mm-hmm. but mainly with good uh, embodiment, good awareness of yourself. So being able to feel the fear, the discomfort, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm at the edge of my, you know, I'm at the edge of my comfort zone. That's often where the learning is. That's where the excitement is. It's called your resilient edge of resistance. You know, oh, it's not super comfortable, which can become boring, but it's not so scary that I'm out of control. That edge of comfort is where eroticism thrives. Mm. So feeling that fear, knowing you've got your safe word if it, if you cross too far, knowing you'll be able to come back into safety if you need to, knowing yourself enough to play in that space. So maybe it's feel the excitement and do it anyway? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but fear and excitement often feel the They're same cousins. in the body. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and one question I wanted to ask, which is something I didn't loop back on at the very start, which is you mentioned that the formula um, or a formula for uh, eroticism and um, sexual satisfaction is attraction multiplied by or via obstacles. Yeah. What's an obstacle that an adult in a long-term relationship might be able to implement in order to reignite a spark? Yeah, it's all about knowing your personal erotic formula, like not a formula. Sorry, let me say that again. It's all about knowing your personal erotic theme. Mm. So whatever your obstacle is that hypercharges your sex drive will be different depending on your upbringing and your turn-ons and your turn-offs. So a great example is what I was talking about earlier, if you know that you're someone that loves the taboo, you love breaking rules, those are the sorts of obstacles that you'd bring into your relationship. Mm. If you're someone that you know you love anticipation, you know you love teasing, you know you love yearning and longing, you'd bring that into your relationship. So a good example of that is instead of just being like, hey, sweetie, let's do date night, it's like you, me, Friday night, this dress, I'm telling you nothing else. You know, that's different. It's Mm. taking the comfort and the, the everyday and turning it into the excitement it's adding an obstacle it's adding uncertainty it's adding anticipation Hmm. so it doesn't have to be unsafe these obstacles but it's lighting the match under your personal eroticism beautiful thank you so much for an incredible discussion (laughs) it's been an honor to have you here alice it's been so much fun thank you for having me a pleasure